0: Last Sunday, we began to look at, I think, one of the most interesting, fascinating characters in all of the New Testament a man by the name of Stephen. A man that I find to be such a cool and interesting story. Last Sunday, we noted two things in particular about Stephen. First, that he was just incredibly relatable. I mean, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12, the A-team. He wasn't uh, part of the 120 that were there in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was poured out. We don't have any information about his conversion other than uh, most of the scriptural evidence in church history. just points to the fact that his Christian experience, very similar to yours. He heard the preaching of God's word. It struck a chord in his heart. He surrendered his life to Jesus. He plugged into a local church. He was benefited and blessed by that local church. He started simply serving. You see, within Stephen, we find an incredible example. Because he's so relatable, he's a great example. Because if God could work through him, a man uh, whose parents weren't necessarily significant, we don't have mention, he didn't have some some great heritage, he wasn't uh, part of some lineage, he wasn't a king, wasn't a prophet, wasn't an apostle. He's just a normal dude who loved Jesus. Jesus changed his life and he started following Jesus. And we see demonstrated through his example that God can use us. If God can use Stephen, there's nothing intrinsically different from him than you. So if he can use Stephen in awesome ways, he can use you in awesome ways. This man saw, he understood that God is not interested and the tasks that are before us. As a matter of fact, they're secondary to us being faithful in the tasks. Let me say that again, because we looked at that in great detail. Our purpose, what you do, what God places before you, from your job to school to a summer break, fill in the blank. What God places before you, your purpose is not that thing. You're not what you do. Rather, your purpose in life is to be faithful in what it is God's placed in front of you. You see, we see in the life of Stephen that he's constantly evolving, he's constantly changing, God's constantly rewarding faithfulness with greater responsibility. He just starts serving in the church. No title, no job description. He's just a servant, the manifestation of his own heart. He starts taking care of needs of those around him. He's an unrecognized servant. And then when this need develops in Acts 6, where they need someone to to carry the load, to carry the responsibility of serving these widows, because while they were looking for servants and Stephen was already being a servant, they're like, that guy fits the role perfectly full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. He's got a servant's heart. He's already serving, perfect choice. So note, he goes from being an unrecognized servant to now being a recognized servant leader. This was not part of a five-year plan or a progression of which Stephen's trying to climb the Christian servant ladder. He's just being faithful. And whatever God places in front of him, it doesn't really matter because his job is to be faithful. So if it's just serving the needs of the church, great. If it's being a leader of other servants, great. But then we see at some point, he's now like no longer just serving within the church or ministering to the needs of the people of the church, but he's going out. And he's, and he's engaging in conversations about what Jesus has done in his life. He starts sharing his faith. Unrecognized servant, servant leader to anointed evangelist. Servant, the leader of servants, evangelist, doesn't even matter. Because for Stephen, his purpose rests not in what he did, but being faithful in what he was doing. It's a subtle difference, but it's a radical, uh, it has radical implications. Because whatever's before you, God has ordained. He's placed it there. It doesn't matter what it is. Your job is to be faithful. Trusting that in faithfulness, God will lead to greater responsibilities, but even if he doesn't, at some point when we die, the moment we awake, when we see Jesus, the most glorious words you'll ever hear is well done. What? You did this and you did that and you were this and you were that. No. Not mentioned at all. But it's well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. You were faithful. Faithfulness, that's your purpose. Trust God with your future. And we see this incredible example. And Stephen, now, he's out engaging the world. He's sharing the truth. And because it's a reality that truth rejecters will also reject truth speakers, Acts 6 closes with Stephen being arrested. He's dragged before a hostile court. People found him to be offensive. And in much the same way that Jesus himself was treated, Stephen, we see, is lied about. He's slandered against. He's falsely accused. And his only crime is that he refused to keep his faith at church. He lived the same life in church as he did in the world. And because he believed the truth here, he carried that faith and those beliefs into the world, and people didn't like it because the truth divides. Now, keep in mind, it was Stephen's faithfulness. I mean, really. Stephen's faithfulness, the fact that Stephen was being faithful over the task that God laid before him, that he was now in this dark situation. Keep in mind that Stephen's faithfulness led him into the darkest, most intimidating situation he had ever faced, which presents for us a difficult reality. As we look at Stephen, this situation, how it all unfolds, please keep in mind That Stephen is there for one reason. Because he was faithful, God sent him there. So God sent a faithful servant into the the lion's den. But note that there was a reason. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we're told that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. If you don't have that verse highlighted, I would exhort you to, because it is a glorious promise. Stephen, this promise will ring true. He's there. He's faithful. He's not rewarded for it. He's placed into a precarious situation. And as he's standing there before this hostile court, verse 15 tells us, that all who sat in the council, which would include the freemen, those of the synagogue of the freemen, these false witnesses and the Sanhedrin, what do they know? They saw that his face was as the face of an angel. He's led into the valley of the shadow of death and he shines gloriously, brightly. Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 19, that who, when he lights a lamp, uh, places it under a basket, but instead places it high above so that all could see. Stephen, shining this light is led into the darkness because guess what? As a light bearer, the greatest place you can shine the brightest is in the greatest darkness. That's evidence. That's the truth. Stephen, he goes into this room. He's in this dark situation. These accusations are being hurled his direction. And he begins to shine. Now, obviously, because no one in that room had ever seen an angel, we understand that this phrase, it's a description. It's it's Luke's way of trying to describe what his countenance looked like. I mean, imagine for a moment being in that situation. You might see someone start to to glow, become translucent, begin to shine and think, oh, it's just like a light bulb, right? Like we have things in our society, paint colors and technology that kind of give us an idea of, of what a glow might look like. In this culture, not a clue. No idea. The best they can come up with is like his his countenance, it was shining. It, well, let's just say it was heavenly. It was like an angel. His countenance shone like the sun, which is interesting that they immediately attribute it to the face of an angel, though none of them had ever seen an angel. But if you recall earlier studies, most of the Sanhedrin is made up of a group of people who What? <laughs> who didn't even believe in the existence of angels to begin with, the Sadducees. Matthew Henry points out that such an undisturbed serenity, such an undotted courage, and such an unaccountable mixture of mildness and majesty there in his countenance, that everyone said he looked like an angel, enough surely to convince even the Sadducees that there were angels when they saw before their eyes an incarnate angel. I love it. Now, last Sunday, we examined the reason behind this occurrence. I referenced last week's study for full context, but case in point, Stephen was being a glorious witness. He was shining a light. So last Sunday, we looked at the reason behind this countenance, but this morning, i want to take some time and focus on the results of this occurrence. Basically, what God was now communicating to those who witnessed Stephen's countenance. As God's man stood before this council, the prosecution is allowed to first build their case before Stephen is permitted an opportunity to provide a rebuttal. This will come in Acts chapter 7. And yet, verse 15 makes it clear that before Stephen can utter a word, before he can say anything to his accusers, what happens? God mounts a defense for Stephen by enabling this supernatural occurrence, this heavenly countenance to manifest in and through the life of Stephen. In a sense, By allowing this heavenly countenance to manifest in Stephen's life and this particular moment in time, faced with this darkest situation of his life, God was intentionally affirming, I think three important things concerning Stephen to all who were present. First, in this heavenly countenance, we should note that Stephen's character was impeccable. Two, his godliness was self-evident. And thirdly, his innocence was undeniable. First, if you're a note taker, you can jot down that Stephen's face revealed an impeccable internal character. The seventh season of American Idol featured a woman named Brooke White. She'd actually end up placing fifth that season. But when the show debuted, she made her, her first performance. She not only became a fan favorite, but immediately something interesting happened on the internet. A certain contingency of idol fans kind of lost their minds. While neither the show nor Brooke had said anything about her religious affiliation, Mormons immediately on the internet began a campaign claiming that Brooke White was one of her own. Kind of interesting. One blogger even, even wrote, she has the Mormon glow, which refers to the, 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 the idea that the faithful have like this radiation from the Holy Spirit. Now, Idol would not confirm her religious affiliations, though the internet was exploding. Brooke was not allowed to discuss the matters either. People had to wait till she left the show. And when she did, in one of her initial interviews, What everyone thought was true, Brooke confirmed. She says, I didn't know I was setting off the Mormon radar. Mormon glow. That's kind of interesting. Like, Like you also hear of like the baby glow, you know, like that kind of weird phenomenon where you can just kind of tell someone's pregnant without knowing they're pregnant, but you just see it kind of on their face. You know what I'm saying? There were, according to this story, two psychologists Nalini Ambati and Nicholas Rule, who wondered. They heard about the story and they wondered, is there really such a thing as Mormon glow? And if so, is there a root cause? Do Mormons actually shine? They began their research by conducting an experiment where they cropped heads of both Mormons and non-Mormons, and then they asked undergraduate volunteers whether they could tell the difference by simply looking at the faces. Is this a Mormon? Is this a non-Mormon? Pick one or the other. Now, random guessing with a large enough sample size would yield a 50% accuracy. It's one or the other. Flip a coin. So if it was just coincidence, just accidental, then over a long enough sample size, they would see that even if initially maybe there were higher statistics, it would ultimately balance out to random guessing. And yet, they discovered something interesting. That over the course of their study people were able to accurately identify Mormons 60% of the time, well beyond just random guessing. 60% is actually the same percentage of your ability to tell if a person's face looks envious or anxious. So they determined that, that there is a weird phenomenon. People, by and large, can pick out Mormons over other Mormons by just looking at the face. So now they kind of want to know, like, that's weird, that there's actually science to validate this. And by the way, I list a whole bunch of studies in c316.tv that you can read on your own. But they decide, now what is it? What could it be? So they ran another experiment. This time, they cropped the photos beyond recognition. They wanted to see what it was that helped people identify Mormons from facial features. Some of the photos, well, they would just reveal an eye or hair. A nose, mouth. Maybe every Mormon has the same crew cut. I don't know. So they decided to isolate individual facial features to see if that would give an indication of what triggered Mormon. Glow. Guess what? From individual facial features? Nope, not at all. 50%. Never crossed the threshold. And yet, when they avoided individual facial features and instead just showed people a patch of skin, right back up to the 60% threshold. Say what? Like, skin? Nicholas Rule believes that what judges were primarily picking up in determining Mormon glow were actually clues of health in the skin. Holy Spirit aside, because Mormons don't drink, smoke, refuse caffeine, enjoy community support, which relieves stress, Mormon glow might simply just be because Mormons are healthier people. Recent studies have actually pointed out that Mormons live up to 10 years longer than the average American. I will die 10 years earlier to drink coffee. (laughs) Now, though this study is fascinating in and of itself, Embaddy and Rule, along with others in the scientific field, they began to wonder, they began to compliment, compliment. Like, if the face revealed like these attributes, Mormon and glow, health of skin, what else does just the face communicate about a person? Now, the next topic that they decided to test, well, it's, it's kind of controversial. They go from Mormon glow to thinking, huh, I wonder if there's such a thing as a gaydar. You ever heard the phrase gaydar? It's like that non-cognitive ability to pick up on a person's homosexual tendencies, like where you kind of know that that guy or gal might be gay without knowing it? Like, if Mormon glow exists, is there such a thing as a gaydar? Now, this is not my study, not my experiment. I just find it fascinating because guess what? They ran the same experiment and people can pick up on homosexuals by just looking at the face way more than even Mormons. According to their own study, people possess a natural ability to identify by only facial recognition lesbians 70% of the time, as well as gay men 65% of the time by just looking at the face. A similar study conducted at the University of St. Andrews later revealed that by just looking at a photo of a person's face, judges of both genders were able to tell whether or not a person was promiscuous open to a one night stand, but just looking at the face, clean cut, kind of loose. I could have used other words, but I'm trying to grow here as a pastor. Rule, he concludes over these studies, he says that we have a built-in system set up whereby we can access others' health for mate selection and disease avoidance, that that we have this biological ability to kind of say, ooh, not the person I want to mate with, or ooh, yeah, that's the person I want to mate with, that that we are able to evaluate based on these basic biological uh, functions. But Rule also believes that these biological functions can then be co-opted for social purposes as well. The studies, they, they, they can show that these biological functions help in detecting religiosity, promiscuity, aggressiveness, competence, competence. You can look at a face and say, stupid, (laughs) pretty smart. Intelligence, trustworthiness, ooh, I let my kids, I let that person watch my kids, ooh not going to allow that person anywhere close to my, like, like we have this basic ability to judge these things, even sexual orientation. Now here's the kicker. Many people see that these types of judgments are indicators of prejudice, like that you're judging people, like it's revealing an inner bigotry. But here's the thing, every person makes internal judgments without realizing it. In an experiment at the University of Pennsylvania, neuroscientist Ingrid Olson asked volunteers to determine whether prejudged faces were beautiful or homely. It's a good way of saying beautiful or ugly. But here was the twist. Each face would only be shown for 13 milliseconds, which is well below the threshold for conscious awareness. Though the judges obviously believed that they had not seen any picture flash before them, When pressed to rate the attractiveness of the person that they couldn't even see, they found that their assessments were astonishingly accurate. In his book, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, which I like thinking without thinking, author Malcolm Gladwell observes that we live in a world that assumes that the quality of a decision is directly related to the time and effort that went into making it. We believe that we are always better off gathering as much information as possible and depending as much time as possible in deliberation. We really only trust conscious decision-making, but there are moments, particularly in times of stress, when haste does not make waste, when our snap judgments and our first impressions can offer a much better decision, a better means of making decisions and sense of the world around us. His book presents this simple reality. Decisions made very quickly can be every bit as good as decisions made cautiously and deliberately. Nicholas Rule believes that continuing research is proving that the subconscious mind not only makes these judgments instantly, (laughs) but actually does a better job, is better equipped to make snap judgments than the conscious mind. He points out that in regards to all of the experiments that they conducted, that the more we ask people to think about their choices before they made them, the worse the result. When people refuse to just go with their gut, they failed. So we make these assumptions, these judgments from the face instantly without knowing it. Now, let me tie this in. You see, by enabling Stephen's heavenly countenance to come shining through air, his face, his face was as the face of an angel. God was doing something very important. He was telling these people, this counsel, these false witnesses, these accusers, he was letting them see He was popping the hood, pulling back the covers. He wanted them to really know who Stephen was. You see, Stephen glowed because of an inner purity and a holy righteousness. Once again, Gladwell makes an interesting observation. He says, anyone who has ever scanned the bookshelves of a new girlfriend or boyfriend or peeked inside his or her medicine cabinet understands this implicitly. You can learn as much or more from one glance at a private space as you can from hours of exposure to a public face. Though Stephen's public life was above reproach, these false witnesses were calling into question what? His internal character. And yet, in allowing Stephen's inner countenance to come shining through in a very public way, God was providing these accusers a glimpse into the private space of his inner life. All you had to do in this moment was take one look at Stephen, And the impeccable nature of his character was on display through his face for all to see. Adam Clark observed, It appears that the light and power of God, which dwelt in his soul, shone through his face. And God gave them proof of the falsity of the testimony which was now before them. As the face of Stephen now shone as the face of Moses did when he came down from the mount, it was the fullest proof that he had not spoken blasphemous words against Moses or God, or else the splendor of heaven would not have rested upon him. Stephen's face revealed an impeccable character, because the face communicates these things. Secondly, Stephen's face demonstrated his godliness. Have you ever noticed? I don't know this is kind of scary. But have you ever noticed that the longer a married couple stays together the more they begin to look alike. It's true. Like many have assumed that this is just kind of a a coincidence of continued association, you know, that because I'm always associating these two people together always, that it's just a coincidence that in my mind it's playing a trick that they look alike. Well, to see if this is true or not, if there's any science behind this phenomenon, the University of Michigan ran an interesting study they analyzed photos of couples that were taken when they were newlyweds and then compared those photos of the same com- couple 25 years later. They wanted to see if there was any change in the actual facial uh, development of the two people the longer that they lived together. And their research discovered that not only is there science that explains that people together over long periods of time do indeed look alike, but they revealed that there's two explanations for this. First... A new study conducted by a team of French scientists has revealed that men find women with whom they share certain facial features more attractive. (laughs) Let me say that a different way. Men are attracted to women who look like them. (laughs) That's kind of scary. Every woman's like, oh no. (laughs) Like a point of self-realization. You see, basically their study stated that individuals fundamentally pursue sexual partners that look like them because they want to extend genetic traits, positive genetic traits. Like if you're a good looking person, you don't marry an ugly person because you don't want like some of your babies looking good and some of them like you want to put up for adoption. Like, like you want healthy, good looking children, good genetics. And so you naturally gravitate towards people that kind of look like you, that share the same genetic traits. But here's the deal. Research has also shown that people who then live in close contact with one another will naturally end up mimicking the other person's facial expressions over time. So 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 understand, you naturally place yourself in close proximity with someone that genetically it's is close to you. And then because your facial expressions and the other person's facial expressions end up mimicking each other over time and you have the same biology, you begin to develop the same like ruts in your face. Like they've actually pointed that couples who look most alike are the happiest. That's weird. Which means that they laugh together more than anything. And when you laugh, constant laughter develops certain kinds of patterns on your face, and the other person's laughing. You have the same close to genetics, and this works against you, so you begin to look more like each other over time. Same thing with sorrow, by the way. Like, if you're in a miserable marriage for a long period of time, you both look alike, and you both look miserable. You see, it would seem that not only do people attract to people that are similar to them, but over time they will also end up mimicking similar mannerisms, physical appearances of the company that they keep. You know the Bible the Bible talks about that bad company corrupts good morals, you know like that that you become who you hang out with. <laughs> you can take that one step further. You be, you start to look like the people you hang out with. And some of the moms are like, "Yep, happening to my son. I know it." Yep. Hanging out with losers. Not only is he acting like a loser, he's starting to look like a loser. That's what happens. Now, by enabling Stephen's heavenly countenance to come shining through, what was God doing? Not only was he showing that Stephen had an impeccable character, but he was also providing an explanation as to the origin of this impeccable character, this godly character. You see, how was it that Stephen reflected God? shined the glory of God. Well, it was one simple reason. He had spent a lot of time in the glory of God. He he reflected God because he had spent time with God. And don't overlook the significant lesson that God's trying to communicate to these religious leaders. These men, their whole lives were dedicated to trying to become godly or righteous by the things that they did for God. But Stephen, he was godly. That was evident but his righteousness wasn't based on what he was doing for God, but it was based on the time that he spent with God. You see, God's telling them, he's telling us, that through the heavenly countenance of Stephen, the key to righteousness is not religion. If you want your life to look more godly, to demonstrate more godly attributes, to shine more things that are godness, righteous, goodness, holiness, that it's not you doing things, it's you hanging out with God. See, the more you hang out with God, the more, because you're in close proximity, you don't rub off on him, that's okay, but he rubs off on you in big ways, in radical ways. Understand, if you want to become Christ-like, the key is not what you do for Christ, but it's a relationship with Christ. Like, if you want to be, more like Jesus in your marriage, then spend more time with Jesus because he rubs off. If you want to have a greater heart for your kids, patience, then instead of of, of trying to work all these things, just spend more time with Jesus. See, if you spend more time with Jesus, then your face is going to start to look like his. Your heart's going to start to mold like his. Your brain's going to wire like his. You, You will become more like him by just hanging out and hanging around Stephen. Not only did, did his countenance reveal this impeccable character, but it showed that it was, it was godly that he'd spent time with God. He was shining a glory, the glory of God in which these men hadn't. These religious men failed to shine. This man had done nothing of the sort that they were attempting to do. He had rejected their empty religion, had hung out with God, and he is glowing. The third thing, that we see here, is that Stephen's face affirmed his innocence. Facial perception refers to an individual's understanding and interpretation of the face. As all married men understand and find incredibly frustrating, the ability to read human expression in order to identify emotional tendencies is of great social importance. My wife is constantly like, I told you we needed to go. And I'm like, no, you didn't. And she goes, no, I told you that we needed to go two hours ago. I was like, no, you didn't. She goes, it was all over my face. And I was like, but did it come out your mouth? You should just know. Yeah, I don't, I, that doesn't, I, that doesn't work for me like that. Like, I, I process information better with words. Shocker. You see, we understand that, that being able to read a face is really important. If you want to know how well you can read a face or not, uh, Harvard has a study online, we've added a link, that you can go, and, and they give you 37 slides that you can go through, and you can, you can judge, like, how well you can read a person's face. The average scores 26. Creighton, the intern, scored a 32. He's like a savant. I'm I'm like two steps above being autistic. I scored like a 24. Literally, 22 is autism. So this explains a lot of my problems, and I've been telling my wife, I just don't have the ability to pick up your facial recognitions. For years, scientists who study facial expressions believed that the face only revealed six primary emotions, right? Happiness, surprise, anger, sadness, fear, disgust. However... Recent research from Ohio State University indicates that there are now up to 20 different facial sentiments. We'll put a picture up on the screen of all 20 facial sentiments. Like, you're supposed to be able to read all of these and know happy, sad, fearful, angry, surprised, disgusted, happily surprised, happily disgusted, sadly fearful, sadly angry, sadly surprised, sadly disgusted, fearfully angry, Fearfully surprised, fearfully disgusted, angrily surprised, angrily disgusted, disgustedly surprised, hatred, and awe. I get none of these. What do you think in this moment Stephen's heavenly countenance was revealing to the people in that room? This guy is standing before the most powerful men in Israel. You can imagine how intimidating the scene. These men who who have shown no ethic in how they treated Jesus, who've already demonstrated similar animus towards Christians, these men hold Stephen's fate in his hands, in their hands. Consider the flood of emotions that he would have naturally experienced as one false witness after another lies about him. How do you feel when someone lies about you? or twists your words, or spreads false testimony. You can could, you could imagine that, that on Stephen's face, as he's hearing these things, there, there was fear, surprise, disgust. Even anger would have been only natural. And yet, this heavenly countenance reveals something otherworldly, doesn't it? Instead of freaking out, growing defensive like many of us would have done, Stephen is more then cool, calm, and collected, he demonstrated an inner peace that passed all understanding. <laughs> it caught everyone's attention. And it was this supernatural peace that should have validated his innocence. We included a video in the links, at c316.tv. It's the last one. It's called, it's called Denver the Dog. It, it talks about seeing guilt seeing shame. These things are hard for us to hide. It's a really funny video. We, did, we don't have time to show it this morning, but you can watch it on your own. But like, Stephen, you think he, he looks guilty here? Do you think his face is shining and everyone's like, yep, totally knew he did it? No. They're looking at this man and they're thinking, that's not normal. That's not normal. Now, here's, here's the question. How was it that Stephen was able to demonstrate such peace in the presence of such hostility and so much uncertainty. You know, aside from the reality that Stephen was innocent, I think there are two additional explanations. I think Stephen was able to have this peace because at the core, he trusted God. Like he trusted God. He knew he was there because God had led him there. So he trusted God with whatever the outcome might've been. He knew that these these men, their opinions, their judgments, they mattered not. Stephen recognized that his reputation, it was before God, that God as the ultimate judge, his opinion carried far more weight because he was confident that God had sent him into this situation for a reason. Stephen understood he had nothing to fear. He had no reason to be afraid. Whom shall I fear? Why should I be afraid? God is on my side. See, he demonstrated peace regardless of whatever the outcome, because he knew that God would defend his reputation and work all things for the good. He trusted God so he could have peace. But secondly, Stephen relied on the Holy Spirit. Please understand, Stephen's reaction to the situation, the situation that he's presently facing, it wasn't natural. This is why it garnered so much attention from the people that were there. So realize, because it wasn't natural, what was his countenance doing? It was giving witness to an unnatural, a supernatural impact that God was making on his life. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul explains the origin of these type of godly attributes, these otherworldly attributes. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he admonishes us all a couple verses later. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Why was it that Stephen had this peace? Uh, Because the Holy Spirit He was walking in the Spirit. You see, you look at someone going through a difficult situation and you see they have peace, they have joy. I know their world's falling down around them and that's not normal. I want to know why. Well, it's because of the Spirit of God working these attributes through the Spirit of God. The peace. This was something that originated not within Stephen. It was a gift that God had given him through the filling of the Spirit Stephen was able to demonstrate incredible peace in the face of extraordinary circumstances for one reason and one reason alone. The only way you can, that is because he was walking in the spirit and facing similar hardships in a prison cell. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, verses four through seven, he says to rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice, always? Again, just because you would question him, I will say rejoice, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand to be anxious for nothing and everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God and what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. This morning, may you consider this fundamental question beyond your words, even beyond your deeds, your actions, your activities, what message does your face communicate to the world around you? Kind of a weird thought, kind of a weird application, honestly. And yet Stephen's heavenly countenance, people could take one look, and they knew this was a man of character. It also revealed a genuine Christ-likeness that had been born from a relationship that he had with Jesus. And it showed a supernatural peace, which demonstrated the power of of God through the Spirit and His life. Does your face contrib- communicate these realities? I hope it does. And if it doesn't, spend some time with God. Because in spending time with God, you'll begin to shine the glory of God. Now, before we close, there's one more observation. I, I know I, I've kind of run verse 15 into the ground. From last Sunday to this Sunday, I know maybe you were anticipating we would get to chapter seven. We're not till next week, and then we'll address it in two separate messages. But there is one more point. If you would bear with me, one more observation I want to make about this idea, this, this heavenly countenance of Stephen, because we really haven't addressed the why, right? Fundamentally. Stephen sent into the dark situation. God works all things for the good. So why is he there? Why would God send this man into this situation? What was the reason, the purpose, the overarching idea? You know, one of the fundamental accusations that had been levied at Stephen centered upon the notion that the gospel message, the message that Stephen was preaching, the new covenant, stood in direct opposition to Moses and the law. They accused him of speaking blasphemy about Moses, about the law, about their customs. You see, the idea that righteousness with God could be found in grace through faith in Jesus and his sacrificial atonement apart from the law, apart from obedience to the law, this was, this idea, this new covenant philosophy stood in total opposition to what these religious leaders believed. It challenged their entire way of thinking. It was an affront to their sensibilities these religiously pious men, they took grave offense at Stephen because they really believed that what he was teaching was heretical and blasphemous. And yet, the case can be made that by demonstrating this heavenly glow, Stephen, uh, through Stephen, that God was in actuality approving something bigger than Stephen. So Stephen glows. And what could God be saying? God could in this moment be showing, demonstrating, communicating to these religious men that he was as as approving of the new covenant as he had been with the old covenant? And you might say, how do we get to that leap? There's only one other instance, and in this entire this entire book that we see what happens to Stephen happen to someone else. It happens back in Exodus 34 with Moses, and what Moses is doing in that moment is significant in regards to our understanding of what could be happening here with Stephen. You see, Moses spends 80 days in the presence of God, receiving what? The law, the old covenant. We're told that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets, the testimony, they were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses, he wasn't even aware of it, that his skin of his face shone as he talked. Aaron, the children of Israel, when they saw Moses, and they saw that his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. You see, the shining face of Moses was God's way of not only affirming that, that, that Moses was God's man, but was God's way of approving that what Moses was bringing down was from God. This means that in much the same way that this supernatural manifestation of this heavenly countenance validated to the people that Moses had not created the law, but that the law had been given by God, the religious leaders should have recognized the same realities concerning the new covenant were now being demonstrated also by Stephen's glowing face. These men should have stood there and seen his face glow and thought, oh man, I've seen that before. Maybe not literally, but I've read about it. That was God's way of approving the old covenant through Moses. And Stephen here, he has this message of a new covenant. We see the same heavenly glow. Maybe they should have reached the conclusion that what? That God was also approving that what Stephen was preaching, God was in favor of. One commentator put it this way. You see what God's saying? God's saying both of those were mine. And Exodus 34, the glory of God on the face of Moses. And as he came down from the mountain with the glory of God, what did he have in his arm? The old covenant and Stephen. There was proclaimed the new covenant and God puts on his face the glow of God. So what is God saying? I approve Moses. I approve Stephen. Don't you you see the fulfillment? Now here's the interesting reality concerning the story. God sent Stephen into a dark world with the specific intention of doing what? Of demonstrating his favor in the new covenant. He, he, he wanted these religious leaders, an opportunity to see a miracle that had, never, that had never occurred since the Exodus. Stephen was there to shine a light, but he was there to bring the revelation of God to these men, why? Not just because God loved them and cared for them, and wanted them to surrender. But he also wanted them to know that whatever they did next would stand in direct opposition to God. You see, we need to understand this before we even get to Stephen's message. God, boom, stamp of approval already on it because of this glow. This is my man, this is my message. I approve both of them. So whatever you do, be careful. You see, aside from demonstrating his approval of Stephen, this man's heavenly countenance shining out into the darkness, it was God's way of revealing himself to these men. God sent Stephen to shine a light so that these men might no longer abide in darkness. Do you realize that the fundamental reason that God has called, commissioned, and sent you to whatever world you find yourself in, no matter how dark and depressing, is to be a witness. It's to shine a light. It's so that people can encounter God. Do you realize that your job in the world, no matter how trivial, trite, insignificant, or stupid you think it is, if we take Stephen's example as our own, that you have been sent there for a heavenly calling, a heavenly purpose. And it's to do what? To reveal God to the lost, by not only being faithful in what you do and in your boldness to stand for the truth, but also through your very countenance. Do you realize that when people encounter you, work, the neighborhood, the ball field, school, church, the drive through, that they should in effect encounter Jesus I'll say that again. When people run across you, it doesn't matter who they are. They should encounter Jesus. Is that the case? Do people see Jesus in you? They saw Jesus in Stephen. I hope you understand. There should be something about your very countenance that screams heaven. It's been said that you might be the only Bible a person ever reads. That you might be it. God's full revelation to them. So if you are God's message, what message are you communicating? What are people learning about God by hanging out with you? Not just by what you say and what you do. You know, at 316, we talk about that our whole purpose here is to equip you for the ministry. That our entire purpose is to equip you to go out the door and to fulfill the call of God. We've been looking at Acts as our blueprint. And yes, we've been laying out what, what the purpose is of our church and, and elders and deacons and all these other things. But, but Stephen tells us what your purpose is, like what your role in the big story is, It's to go out those doors and to shine the light is to interact with the world and in doing so, the world seeing God, not you. Please have that understanding. Please walk and carry that significant weight because it is, but understand that the only way you can do it is by walking in the spirit. It's by spending time with Jesus And allowing him to rub off so that when you go out there, they're not seeing you. But they're seeing your creator. As we mentioned last Sunday, we're to let our light shine. That they may see our good works and glorify our our Father in heaven. But, but, But where does the light come from at all? Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus fills us with that light. And our job is to decrease, to get out of the way, to walk in this understanding and desire to communicate Christ. When you die, your job is not your evaluation. Being faithful. It's a heavenly calling. It's a high calling, but it is our calling nonetheless. And so Father, with that word, we allow these things to seep down into our hearts.